just sidebar can we put an NSYNC track on our uh, playlist please um, I think Absolutely. we have to now um, <laughs> well I have this in the recording so I'll know that you've asked for it <laughs> listening to i might be wrong a podcast hosted by myself rich newnham and my co-host henry salmon welcome back you are listening to i might be wrong henry and i are here just the two of us this week how are you sir very well thanks as usual sun is shining i am smiling and um yeah after a couple of really good guest episodes Mm. um it's almost a shame just to go back to two of us it is and it isn't because it's always lovely to have a guest on, but you have brought an absolutely brilliant, wonderful classic album for us to talk about. Uh, yeah, I've gone large and I've probably gone too large. I, I don't think <laughs> we can truly do the Beach Boys and Pet Sounds, uh, for that is the uh, artist and album we're going to talk about. I don't think we can really do them justice in 45 minutes. There's so much as we've said many times on some of the bigger bands, there's so much out there, but let's have a go. Let's just talk about them. I think it's worth it. I almost had a a wobble when I started doing the research for this, just because <laughs> I started to think I've just gone way too long. I've gone too big, but let's have a go at it. Well, yeah. I mean, we have to, we have to start somewhere on these guys. We've got Beach Boys, we're going to talk about Beatles. We've got Pink Floyd. We've got so many huge bands that we haven't touched because again, both of us are a little bit nervous about not doing them justice. So I think, you know, it's a good place to start. It's a it's a great place to start. So tell us a little bit about the Beach Boys, because they're an odd band in terms of how they were formed and then how they evolved, right? Yeah, exactly that. So the Beach Boys, they weren't actually called the Beach Boys when they started. They're three brothers. So there's, there's Brian, Brian Wilson, who everyone's probably heard of two brothers Dennis and Carl their cousin Mike Love and their best buddy Al Jardine who um, unfortunately left the band to go to college just before everything really kicked off but uh, that's how they started Uh, so they started as a little family group effectively they were singing their own harmonies and when they were 16 Brian started experimenting with recording and um starting to experiment with overdubbing with trying to sing along to his own harmonies effectively building up soundscapes on his little tape recorders with the other brothers and with Mike Love all joining in to try and create this uh little sound it's probably worth noting in their really early years when they were preteen it's probably worth worth mentioning their dad mm-hmm. so Murray Wilson who's the kind of the, the the evil figure in all of this. Um, although he was he's he was their producer, but he's also widely documented as being pretty abusive to the family. Brian Wilson's deaf in one ear. It's assumed that he was deaf because he got hit over the head with an iron bar when he was three years wow. old, which knocked out his hearing. The band have routinely been almost criticised by their father, even though he's been their producer, and all the way through. He never really liked the band. He never liked their success, even though he was kind of driving them on. It's all a a bit of a sad story, but I don't really want to dwell too much on the on the Murray story. But there's a lot out there if you kind of if you want to see the background. It's it's almost a 
a totally separate sidebar into how they grew up and how they they got their drive it's funny isn't it because there's a lot of that semi-manufacturing of bands in the 60s and 70s by very controlling parental figures and it's not always the parent of the kids it's sometimes a manager or someone like that but there's there's often this controlling figure that is sitting in the background and I obviously did a bit of research on this not nearly as much as you did but the big thing for me was the fact that he seemed to have a lot of resentment for Brian being inventive and creative and stepping outside the mold of what he thought they should be as a band. Absolutely. And it kind of almost reduced Murray's role. And they had a an agreement to split profits in the early 60s for, for, for the Beach Boys. But then Murray sold all of their rights in 1969 and Brian Wilson didn't see any of it. So wow. even in the late 60s, when they were really super successful, they've got this kind of controlling persona. Brian Wilson got a payout after that of um, probably not the total amount that he should have got, but these problems were going all the way through their their career. Yeah. And we, like you say, we shouldn't dwell on that stuff, but I want to bring you back to something you said before you mentioned their father, which is Brian Wilson and this early experimenting with layering of music using his own voice in many different levels, which nowadays people won't think of that as being anything particularly special or particularly clever. But back then, this was almost unheard of there were very very few people out there in the world doing that kind of stuff it's this groundbreaking thing that he and a few other artists are doing at that time that is just unbelievably different and and a total new level to what everyone else is doing totally and i think this is one of the reasons why people will see so much of brian wilson's name floating around in the press it's because he's not just come up with a lot of these songs um well sidebar onto mike love his cousin who mm-hmm. wrote a lot of them and i think there was a bit of a tussle over who actually wrote a lot of the lyrics and but in terms of the the production that's brian wilson and that's him putting a a huge stamp on his music and i wouldn't say changing the face of music because you've got phil Spector coming into the picture as well we'll talk about him in a minute but in terms of the the way that he wanted to hear a sound their sound coming out of the radio they kicked off a almost a little mini revolution on the on the west coast of, of the states well they absolutely did i mean most recordings back then if you were a band recording in the studio for a single for an album whatever it happened to be those recordings were all done as a band recorded together and recorded live and you had a take and you saw whether that take was what you wanted. And if it was, that became the single. And if it wasn't, you re-recorded rather than having parts recorded separately and then brought together, which is what he was starting to do. Yeah. And they did this at just the same time as the surfing craze on the Californian coast kicked off. And these two things met in this beautiful little supernova which is probably the reason that the Beach Boys suddenly just shot to fame so much because mm-hmm. it was this kind of culture change. You've got the kids in their hot rods. You've got this sunny California scene. Everyone's singing about it. It's yep. the, the early 60s. And those two things at the same time were a brilliant cocktail. And I think only one of the band, I think Dennis, 
like surfing. I think Brian Wilson is scared of the sea. But I think Dennis was saying, look, there's this massive craze. All of the kids are getting into it. Let's try and jump on this bandwagon and make music to sing about the girls and the beaches and that lifestyle. And that is very clearly a focus. You look at the the early albums and all of them have some mention of surfing both in the album name and in a lot of the titles of the the tracks yeah and they were let's be really clear on this one they were looking at the almost kind of the the pop culture side of of surfing in in the in a kind of mainstream way if you look at a lot of the surf culture and a lot of the surf films that were produced in the in the 60s so kind of at the same time that they were recording you won't hear a beach boy song on these surfing films that were recorded there the beach boys were considered total mainstream pop they were on the billboard charts right. the actual surfing kind of underground and the core surfers would never go anywhere near this stuff they would be <laughs> kind of a lot more well a lot of that music was a bit more trippy and a bit more a bit weirder to be honest uh, right another sidebar some brilliant surf movies floating out of the 60s go and watch something like big wednesday or some of the movies from that time they're fantastic but they show the scene and they kind of have all had this brilliant kind of sun-kissed energy that uh, you kind of wish you could have been a part of, I guess. <laughs> and you, I mean, you and I both know this. I imagine almost everyone listening, all of you lot will know Surfing USA, which was on their second album, is probably one of the most well-known tracks from from any of their early work. Yeah, exactly. And this is where it gets a bit funny because if you look at the first two, three years, like in 62, they released Surfing Safari, 63, Surfing USA, 63, The Surfer Girl album came out at the same time. Again in 63, they they released Little Juice Coupe. So they're just throwing out LP after LP after LP. And they're all really similar. They're all this kind of upbeat <laughs> surf style song. And they're just riding this popular wave uh, of um, <laughs> lol, which did them did them really well, and they were hitting the charts all the time. They were appearing on on the radio like constantly on TV. They were massive, and really before we even get anywhere near Pet Sounds, these guys were 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 a huge group in the in the states, and they kind of were actually they got to their peak in I guess sixty three sixty four in terms of where their albums were charting. Yeah. But then in 64, that's kind of when things changed because the British turned up. Right. So at the same time, the surfing craze started to die a little bit of a death. It had been, I guess, done to bits. But over in the UK, you had the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, all those bands starting to become really quite well-established. And they came over to the States and just took the states by storm. They had Phil Spector and his Wall of Sound. People kind of look at the Wall of Sound, and it's, it's mentioned a lot in popular music literature. Mm -hmm. It's a great quote on explaining what the, the Wall of Sound is. And Spector's quoted as saying, I was looking for a sound, a sound so strong that if the material was not the greatest, the sound would carry the record. So layering guitars and right. using orchestral instruments. And I think Brian Wilson looked at Spector and went, he's doing kind of what I'm doing. This is another guy who I see eye to eye on. And the two of them were just kind of influencing each other. Yeah. So Brian just, I guess, found someone in Spectre that, that he could really bounce ideas off. Right. And this was an odd moment for the Beach Boys because 
this is the moment where they could have just carried on being a pop band that didn't really change that much, but they did what the Beatles did. So if you listen to the first, what, three or four Beatles albums, they're all very, very poppy, incredibly poppy tunes, nothing particularly experimental, nothing particularly out there. They were groundbreaking at the time because no one had really done that pop rock sound until you know, the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, mid 60s. But then you're starting to get into the drug-influenced Beatles. You've mentioned this before on the podcast, the whole idea that their albums were influenced by drugs and an album in particular that was really important to this story as well as their own is Rubber Soul, which is considered their pot-smoking album. Yeah. That album came out in 65 and Brian Wilson basically sat down, listened to it and it it blew his mind. He said in his autobiography, Rubber Soul's probably the greatest record ever. Uh, it wasn't just the lyrics and the melodies, but the production and their harmonies, which is exactly what you're saying. It's that layering of everything in there. And the media at the time had this sort of thing of the Beach Boys versus the Beatles. They liked to pit bands against each other because the fans of the bands would almost go to war with each other to a certain extent because a lot of the fans back then were absolutely rabid. But actually... The Beach Boys, the Beatles, Dylan, the Stones, all these all these guys are friends and they're actually picking each other's brains on techniques and tricks and what they're doing. And so when Wilson heard that record, he was so inspired. I mean, the story suggests that he sat down immediately after listening to it and wrote God Only Knows. Yeah, well, this is where... So Wilson had already started distancing himself a little bit from the public scene so in probably about a year before rubber soul came out i think he was realizing that he kind of had to up his game really well he had a nervous breakdown in 63 as well yeah because of the pressure of all of the stuff that was going on with the beach boys and he'd stopped touring with them at that point yeah exactly and so it wasn't like rubber soul dropped and he freaked out he was he was struggling already but i think rubber soul was one of those albums which really touched a nerve with with wilson and uh yeah, he kind of locked himself away. In the 65, he released a couple of other albums. A bit weird. There's the Party album from the Beach Boys, which is um, a fake live recording. If you've listened to it, it's a bit <laughs> bit funny. It's completely calculated. It was totally planned to sound like a bit of a party going on in the background. Um, Barbara Ann's on there. Great song. Right. And then in 65, Today came out, which, again, is more poppy. And, and really, in 65... Today was almost like a precursor to Pet Sounds. It kind of, it dropped the surf music. That's all gone. Yeah. The drugs had started to kick in. I think Brian Wilson had been introduced to pot. So the sound had mellowed, as you'd expect. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and it's it was the kind of prototype almost for this new, new kind of sound that you hear in Pet Sounds. Some of the stuff that I read suggested that some of those albums were born out of the unhealthy dynamic between brian and murray wilson where brian was playing around with pet sounds and building up things and recordings for that and both murray wilson and the record label were listening to this stuff and going this isn't beach boys this isn't what we want to be doing what the hell is he playing at and that's why he was almost forced into doing those other recordings and releases to appease the we need a big pop thing from from those sides yeah, exactly. I think they released a Christmas album as well uh, at some point. They were just basically 
pushed in one direction by the record company and then you've got the creative talent of Wilson who you could kind of you could probably call a genius I guess in, in some ways him dragging his music in the other direction going no we need to go away from all this pop stuff because I need to compete with the Beatles well it was this idea that he had heard Rubber Sound and loved it so much that he was like oh this is something that can be done I want to be doing stuff like this I want to make an album that's as good as Rubber Soul that's that became almost a mission for him yeah, which I guess brings us to Pet Sounds. Yeah. Which is, uh, I guess, widely quoted as one of the best albums ever made and everyone in the music industry will... No one's going to kind of piss all over Pet Sounds. Um, <laughs> I, I think some some people are going to... The interesting thing for me is how different it is to what I originally thought of the Beach Boys as. So I thought mm-hmm. of Beach Boys as surf rock, surfing USA, all that stuff. Pet Sounds really isn't that kind of style. And this is what the the public in the States struggled with as well. You can't dance to it. Right. So it crept into the top 10, barely, where all of their other albums had gone straight right up in high in the charts. Mm-hmm. And I think the American public, as you said, as their producers probably said as well, what's going on? This This sounds a bit weird. Weirdly though, over in the UK everyone got it and was like, this is great. We like this. Because I guess the British public could relate to it more. Well, we'd also got used to those kind of sounds. People in the UK had already heard Rubber Sound. They'd already heard other bands coming out with that kind of music that was a bit more experimental. And there was there was a demand for it, whereas that demand in the States maybe came a bit later. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And um, it was quite a time to, to put out an album like this. We've mentioned the the bands that that were that were working on this, but in addition to the Beach Boys, they had about fifty musicians play on Pet Sounds, so it was a huge amount of work and a huge amount of back to this wall of sound, this kind of this layering and layering and layering of sounds to the point where I saw one article describing it as they wanted to get to the point almost where you couldn't really work out what the instruments are that are being played. Mm-hmm. You've got just a noise and you've got a studio almost that's creating that sound as well and this this huge thing coming out of your radio back then which just you just hadn't heard before there was something that apparently brian wilson had noticed in rubber soul that is one of the many musical influences that comes across into pet sounds which is that if you listen to uh you won't see me there's an organ drone that kicks in three quarters of the way through the song and he apparently had listened to that this was a thing that he he'd noted as like adding this something extra to the music no one else would pay attention to something like that most people wouldn't even hear it i went and listened to it and it took me a couple of listens before i actually could pick it out but that's the kind of musical ear and brain brian wilson had yeah i think it's a little bit difficult for us I guess, listening to this music almost secondhand, I mean, it came out in in the mid-60s. So all the people who heard this first are in their, I guess, their 70s. And uh, But for them, you've got a new musical style. You've got this, this sound, which we probably hear a lot today because all the record producers kind of create these sounds all the time. It's kind of it's much more normal to, yeah. to do overdubbing now. One of the things that really struck me about this album as well is the level of orchestral work that is in there it's much more than just a band album like you say there's this layering the Beatles did layering but they normally did it themselves with instruments that they were learning as part of their exploration you know you hear about the kind of the India trips that they did and all that kind of stuff 
he was bringing in musicians, but he was bringing in, like you say, swathes of orchestral bands, which apparently was another of the issues for the record companies. Like, how the hell are we ever going to recreate this played live? So that's a whole another <laughs> yes. issue. But there's there's tracks like Let's Go Away for a While, which is entirely instrumental, but it's so orchestral. It sounds like a movie soundtrack. It's that kind of soundscape. And, and particularly the percussion is very orchestral. So you've got these big kettle drum things rattling around in the background that you just wouldn't have heard in a normal 60s pop rock album up to that point. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there are two instrumental songs. There's, that is Let's Go Away and, and Pet Sounds. And, and both of them, are, when I first heard the album, this is a while ago, I, I just thought they were filler. It was like, what is this? I, I want I want lots and lots of pop songs. But <laughs> you go back and listen to it again and you, you understand what they were trying to record and it makes sense and it becomes a, a part of that album, a really integral part of the album. You wouldn't you wouldn't try and remove them. Right. And that's the other thing is that a lot of albums up until this point were collections of pop song singles rather than necessarily an album put together. Obviously, you had jazz musicians and you had the classical music world that were doing this for a long time before white UK American rock started doing it. But all of a sudden, they're pulling in much more of that influence and thinking about these as a, as a full work rather than just we're recording a bunch of songs that we like and we'll pick as many singles out as we can to sell as many records as possible exactly so yeah if we kind of briefly move through the album it starts almost kind of almost normal beach boys so wouldn't it be nice is a is a classic it's a, it's an absolute stonking belter from from wilson it's brilliant you know what one of the things about this that makes it stand out as not just your average pop tune it changes key within the first seven seconds of the song <laughs> yes oh good spot it does yep, doesn't it it's, it really it does it starts in I think it starts in A major I, I had to look this up because obviously I don't know enough about music yeah. from a kind of technical perspective I knew it was a key change but it's got this A major that sounds almost like an ice cream van thing <laughs> and then and then there's this drum beat and it drops into F yeah it is, that is weird that drop is that one yeah and you kind of think what and it's it's super clever way to start an album because I think this and the next couple of tracks is Wilson's attempt at changing where you think this album is going. So you've got this, which is one of my favourite songs in the album, and That's then so good. But then the next two, they he starts to kind of ramp down the the sound, and he starts to slow everything down. So you still believe in me? Then goes into that's not me, and and that's not me. He's quiet and. You're starting to think, wait a second, where's my surf rock? Where is all that stuff? And um, and it's not there. It, it's a it's a very different kind of sound. It is, but if you listen to this and think about Rubber Soul, it makes a lot of sense because there's still a lot of melodic stuff going on. It's just much more chilled and laid back. Y- yeah, like you say, it's not it's not pop rock. It's much more. It's almost stoner rock. Yeah, and and then. Don't talk, which is the next one, is even kind of quieter. You've got this these kind of haunting vocals floating around, but the Beach Boys that I think a lot of people think about, it just this is not them at all. This is a different different style completely, and I think this is the point where you've got all those teenagers 
thinking, I can't dance to this. I'm, I'm out. I'm not buying this record. And yeah, more fool then maybe. Well, the, the other thing is, so I, I briefly mentioned yesterday to my mum that we were going to talk about this album. And she was like, oh, yeah, the Beach Boys. You couldn't really admit that you like the Beach Boys because people would laugh at you. And that was the thing back then. If you liked the Beach Boys and you were a Brit, people thought about them as being that manufactured pop almost. And then all of a sudden, it's like if, I don't know, NSYNC had suddenly <laughs> dropped from doing pop music to doing like really inventive, clever stuff. We'd have all been like, what? No, and sync, nah, and ignored it, which is sort of what happened to them because the audience that they shifted to making music for probably just didn't take them seriously at that point. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. But yeah, this is where the album kind of heads off down this, its own special route. And you do need to listen to it a couple of times to start understanding quite what they're, they're trying to do. I think the other thing that's interesting about the album from a, a listening as a modern a modern viewer perspective is that people will listen to this and not think it's that inventive or new if they've never heard it before because so much modern music is built on a lot of this stuff i mean this is why i keep coming back to the fact that so much this stuff was brand new and very inventive at the time even though now it's considered almost old hat the thing that does still really date the album is the recording quality because you didn't have like the high-end hi-fi microphones, tape, all that kind of stuff, you know, digital that we have now to record at the time. So this this was as good as it could get really back then. Yeah, and it's really noticeable now. You do not have that that quality, but then conversely, if you're listening to this on coming out of your radio back in the sixties, your ears are gonna pick up because they've just they've created this this soundscape that's different. Yeah, I've got to mention Sleep John B. And the reason is, I'm glad is, you brought that up. Well, it, it's more of a personal one, this one, because this is one of those songs which is kind of nestled in my earliest memories. And I'm not quite sure. It must have been my, my parents or friends that were around them at the time that were playing it or singing it. And this is like a core memory of my childhood when I was really young. And uh, it's lovely. And it, and it does get stuck in my head. It's a really beautiful track, but it's sort of got this sadness about it as well. There's things like the lyric, this is the worst trip I've ever been on, which as a kid, I just thought was like bad car journey. But obviously, when you actually know more about Brian Wilson, you realise this is a drug reference at this point. Yeah, it's a song where all my, my early thoughts of being by the sea and watching boats, this is it. The, 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 you hoist up the, the sail and off you go on your, on your sleep. It, it, it's a, a lovely early early memory for me, and, and this song is, is really part of that. It's a song that I hadn't listened to for a very, very long time until I went back to listen to Pet Sounds for this. But again, it's one that's so lodged in my brain that I knew it instantly and immediately and entirely just just as soon as it came on. Totally. I should guess we, we should um, talk about the next track, shouldn't we? <sighs> Well, I was, I was actually going to skip it, but you know what? Go on then. Go on. That's better. So, <laughs> Let's do it. little track called God Only Knows. Wow. couple of facts about this that I particularly love. First one that we should touch on is that Paul McCartney has consistently rated this as one of, if not the best thing he's ever heard. He's one of his favourite tracks. Who's he? <laughs> he's, he's got taste it. Yeah. Yeah. He was reasonably well known in the 60s and 70s, I think. <laughs> But he also played this album to John Lennon over and over again. And one of the key things was God Only Knows, which was like a massive influence on the Beatles. But the other thing is 
This was never released as a single. It was released as a B-side because American Radio, they thought they wouldn't play a track if it had the word God in the title and wasn't like some kind of Christian music thing. Wow, I didn't know that. That That's a cracking little uh, tidbit. I've I've, I've not heard that. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's one of my favourite songs ever. And everyone who listens to this podcast must know enough music to know this song. And if you don't, just listen to it. I, I still get kind of emotionally pulled into this song wherever I am whenever you hear this song there's something about the cadence it's the the drumming it's the way that the music kind of builds and then drops again it's the singing which isn't Brian Wilson by the no. way um, Brian Wilson normally sings but on this one it's um is it Carl I think it's Carl yes because they thought that he had a more youthful more innocent sounding voice yeah which is Fantastic. And in terms of imagine being at the forefront of one of the biggest bands in the States and not having the ego to go, no, I want to sing this and being like, no, this is better if he sings this one. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's difficult because you kind of want to talk about it a lot, but it just in part of me just says, just play it. Absolutely. Just stop the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be listening to us. Just go and just go and play that that song. It, it, it's a. Uh, it's one of the best songs ever written. Simple as that. McCartney's right. He's, he's nailed it. Also, you think back to the 60s when people were writing very slushy love songs. This opens with the line, I may not always love you. What an incredible way to like, it's this idea of, I won't always love you because at certain point we'll part ways, we'll die, whatever. But this whole idea of as long as there's breath in my lungs, I will. It's just yeah. wonderful. It's brilliant. And and following that, I know there's an answer kind of it is is this quite positive song afterwards, which you kind of need if I don't <laughs> I think if that song wasn't following God Only Knows, I think it would be a little bit um a little bit heavy. But the rest of the album, I guess to me, is I guess it hits its peak at God Only Knows. Yes. There are some lovely songs later. I, I just wasn't made for these times. It's a particular favourite of mine. It's one that um it's it's sad. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it almost seems like a now I don't know who actually wrote this, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's Mike Love writing the lyrics for this because Mike Love didn't really like the whole transition away from surfing and all of that stuff because he was really big into let's follow the surf crowd, let's hit the the big time, let's be on the Billboard charts, and this whole thing of actually we're going away from that. Let me find out. I will. I will. I'll do some googling while while we chat. <laughs> yeah, but um, I, I don't know who wrote that. Yeah, I think you're right. For me as well, there is good stuff later on in this album, but those are the key tracks that we've we've kind of touched on that just create the best bits of of this album. I was completely wrong. It's a Brian Wilson track. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, it shows what I know. But um, but it's a lovely one. To be fair, most of Pet Sounds is Brian Wilson because this was the album that he was writing while the rest of the, the band were on tour. So their parts in Pet Sounds are mostly they came back from tour and he got them to record parts that he felt were right for them. And even yeah. then, sometimes he'd be like, no, they fucked that harmony. I'm going to re-record it myself and use my own one. Yeah, there is another guy, Tony Asher, who's, who chips in on this one too. And he's, he is a bit of a constant in, in the Beach Boys as well. I, I think when they move away from the surfing scene a little bit, he, he crops up a bit more. Is Asher the guy that Brian Wilson was using as like a lyrical uh, sounding board, I guess? Yeah. 
So Wilson would sort of have these ideas of what he wanted to say and sometimes he couldn't quite work it out. So he'd lean on Asher to like come up with these really snappy versions of the lyrics. Exactly. Yeah. So Pet Sounds has come out. The Beach Boys in the UK are suddenly a a massive thing. But do you want to then mention the kind of almost the, re- the response, I guess, from a certain British band? Yeah. So this is where McCartney and Lennon, but McCartney in particular, picked up Pet Sounds and just absolutely loved it. So McCartney talked about in an interview that he did probably only 10 or 15 years ago, the fact that if he did a drive to London, it was like a two hour drive there, two hour drive back. And he'd listen to Pet Sounds on one of the legs of that journey. And he still thinks it stands up to anything that's been done in the, in the interim. So he's, he's an absolutely huge fan. Apparently, as legend has it, Bruce Johnston, who was Brian Wilson's standing on the Beach Boys tours, had played the entirety of the album for Lennon and McCartney and apparently they were so blown away that they were like had to listen to it again straight <laughs> yeah. away uh, and so that was a huge musical influence then on Sgt Pepper's which obviously is considered the Beatles I mean I consider it the Beatles best album mm. a lot of people do consider it to be up there or the best album I mean it's it's an incredible one and again you can hear a lot of those influences so there's this idea that McCartney talks about of Brian Wilson would use bass lines to create melodies rather than your classic using piano or guitars to do it. He put the melody into the bass line. And so you can hear that in some of the Beatles tracks in that album. So Getting Better, for example, has a brilliant bass line that drives the melody. And A Day in the Life is the same. You listen to the opening of A Day in the Life, which is comfortably my favorite ever Beatles song and all of that early melody is coming in in the the bass line rather than elsewhere in the song yeah it is amazing how uh, the, the albums are brilliant in their own right but when you start realizing the kind of the influences on each one and the way that yep. it kind of goes back and forth um the, the way that Sgt Pepper gets influenced by Pet Sounds is brilliant and actually and, and then weirdly if you go later into the Beach Boys back catalogue, there a lot of their songs, the singing suddenly starts to sound like the Beatles and right. the, the voices lose their surfy edge and they, they almost try and mimic the Beatles in the way that they, they deliver their lyrics. Yeah, and I, I mentioned earlier on in, in this episode that the media at the time were trying to drive this idea of the two bands being massive rivals and hating each other, but they, they loved each other's work and they were hugely friendly. So again, another McCartney quote if records had a director within a band, I sort of directed Pepper and my influence was basically the Pet Sounds album. Yeah. So he's not he's not making any bones about the fact that they've used Pet Sounds as a huge, huge influence for themselves. I mean, another quote, I figure no one is educated musically until they've heard the album. It's not like <laughs> Liam Gallagher hating everything that Blur ever did. These guys loved each other's music and they'd hang out together. A lot of the time they'd hang out together, they'd pick each other's brains. Phil Spector has his fingers in many different musical pies in the 60s and there's crossover just purely from him being involved in, in a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and it, it seems so promising... But it's kind of the point where the Beach Boys kind of fell off the wagon yep. a bit and, and they started to struggle. Well, this is the issue. There are multiple different versions of this story, but Brian Wilson basically heard some of, or all of, depending on which story you follow, Sergeant Peppers and just went, they've got their first, they've recorded 
what I was trying for. So there's one version that Wilson himself had said that once he'd heard Strawberry Fields Forever on the radio, he abandoned Smile because he felt that he was unable to produce anything as great as that. Michael Voss describes being in a car with Brian when Strawberry Fields Forever came on the radio. He just shook his head and said, they did it already. And I said, they did what? And he said, what I wanted to do was smile. Maybe it's too late. Wow. There's another version that suggests that Paul McCartney and a few others were in LA discussing things with Capitol Records and the smile sessions were happening and McCartney asked to tag along. And there's rumours that in Vegetables on the smile final release things that McCartney is eating celery on that on that recording. That may or may not be exaggerated for the purposes of a great story. But apparently after the session had finished, McCartney played Wilson a version of A Day in the Life on a piano and Wilson just was in a shambles afterwards. Wow. There's a suggestion that they had a pre-recorded version that he played. So there's all these different stories, but basically what it comes down to is everything that the Beatles achieved with Sergeant Peppers is sort of where Wilson was trying to go with Smile. And it, it just, he didn't know what to do with that at that point. Yeah. And if you don't know the whole Smile story, Smile was supposed to be the next album from Pet Sounds and it was supposed to be Wilson's response to that but he tried to <laughs> try to create something even more weird which was a uh, an album of of kind of sounds and concepts he wouldn't record songs he would record kind of bits of music almost kind of chord changes ideas and he was trying to shape that into this thing which was he was aiming at and just couldn't quite get to so they ended up releasing just in 67, they released Smiley Smile, which was a kind of distilled version of Smile. It charted really badly. Right. It's actually really, really nice if you listen to it. It's a lovely album, but I think it wasn't really what Brian Wilson wanted to achieve. Smile ended up getting released in 2011, and I think a lot of the old Beach Boys fans, who I guess must have been in their 60s, were suddenly jubilant that this thing appeared on the scene but it's it is a bit of a shame that what he was trying to achieve didn't get achieved back in 67 yeah and i'm not convinced that the final version of smile is really what could have been released if he'd continued working on it at that point and had actually released his what he had in his in his brain because there's there's so much that happened in between 67 and then when it finally got released that it feels like a lot of that stuff is some of the tracks on there are incredible, but there's some stuff that sort of feels just unfinished and not really... It just feels incomplete, I guess. Yeah. We should absolutely mention Good Vibrations because that's obviously one of their most famous tracks. It's a brilliant, brilliant track. But there's another track that ended up on the final smile called Surf's Up, which a number of people have suggested is his response to A Day in the Life and has a similar kind of flow i mean day in the life is just a completely standalone track from my perspective it's very unlike anything else that proceeded over the next few decades but this has similar feels to it and i'm going to segue straight into that because surfs up the album was released in um in 71 that contains surfs up it's also got one of my favorite beach boy songs which i think it was written about an orgasm um, it's called feel flows <laughs> it's one of my it's a lovely it's just an incredible song and the Surf's Up album again didn't really it was at a point where I don't know whether people had Beach Boys fatigue and it didn't really 
hit the heights but it's worth a worth a listen because it is it does still have those creative like little flashes of genius in there i think the biggest problem with a lot of the stuff is post or even even before i guess pet sounds is the amount of it's very difficult to know really what was going on because Brian Wilson himself has had such issues with his mental health and with drug taking to try and self-medicate that has just exacerbated all of those issues that he's an incredibly unreliable witness on his own history. And so you don't really know a lot of what's going on. But I mean, you mentioned the fact that he was clearly getting some level of, I don't want to say abuse because... I don't know the detail, but there was there was definitely some difficulties in his childhood. He's clearly got mental health issues that have carried through his adulthood, whether that was triggered by the drugs or the drugs were just a byproduct of him having the mental health issues and trying to dig through them. I mean, I suspect it's all intertwined. Yeah. He's somewhat unstable as a human being and went through some really bad patches. And I think that's the problem is that through those bad patches rather than being allowed to recover and and have the help that he needed in fact what happened was he was still being driven to be this creative center of the beach boys world because they needed him to make money yeah exactly and so he became more reclusive and then you've got what at the end of the 70s oh sorry end of the 60s dennis wilson was was falling to bits he ended up going overboard on a boat in 83 and um, and drowning. But the band into the later 70s just started fracturing, I guess, um, just because of all of this. You think he wrote Pet Sounds when he was 23. Imagine writing one of the greatest rock albums of all time at 23 and being burnt out by 25 and then struggling with mental health issues for the rest of your life. That's sad. It's incredible, but it's incredibly sad as well. Yeah, it absolutely. You kind of think if you went back... If you offer a 16-year-old Brian Wilson who's recording on his full track, all that success and that kind of... And the fact, look, with two two guys in the UK are talking about him in 2021 and, <laughs> and saying what an incredible time this was. And, you know, would you, would you trade that all up for the, the kind of, I guess, the mess that followed? I don't know. Right. And there's a story that I found when I was looking at the Beatles, Beach Boys influences on each other. Somewhere else in one of those articles, there was a, there's a, a story from Alice Cooper who said, I was sitting backstage after the 1974 Grammys with Bernie Taupin, who was Elton John's lyricist, and John Lennon. This was when Brian was having some mental issues. During the course of the conversation, I kept seeing him out of the corner of my eye, staring at us from different angles. You could always imagine him like peering around <laughs> corners of <laughs> things. And eventually came up to the table and sort of bent down and went, hey, Alice, introduce me to John Lennon. And Alice Cooper, of course, couldn't believe that they'd never met. You know, they'd spent so much time around each other in the 60s. But I thought to myself, wow, if they'd really never met, I'm going to be the one to introduce them and become a part of rock history. So I merely said, Brian Wilson, this is John Lennon. John Lennon, this is Brian Wilson. Lennon was very cordial and polite, saying things like, hello, Brian, I've always wanted to meet you. I've always admired your work. Paul and I consider Pet Sounds to be one of the best albums ever made. Brian thanked him, walked away, at which point Lennon went right back to his conversation like nothing had happened. About 10 minutes later, Brian came by our table again, leaned down and whispered something to Bernie. And all of a sudden, Bernie was saying, Brian Wilson, this is John Lennon, John Lennon, Brian Wilson. Lennon was just as cordial and polite as the first time, saying essentially the same things about always wanting to meet him. As soon as Brian walked away, John looked at us both and casually said in his typical Liverpoolian accent, I've met him hundreds of times. He's not well, you know. Oh, wow. That's, that. what a brilliant anecdote i mean it kind of sums it up i mean the respect straight away right 
And the fact that Lennon respected him that much to just treat him like that rather than being like, oh, fuck's sake, this guy again. Wow. Yeah. Incredible, isn't it? Wow. So, yeah, I mean, the Beach Boys, eh? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's just a mammoth back catalogue and you do end up picking through to try and find the best stuff because there's, there's, like you said, there's a lot of poppy stuff. There's some incredible work. Pet Sounds, people talk about that Brian Wilson being a genius. He hates that tag because he says once you've been tagged as a genius, people just use it to hit you with and, and knock you down again if you don't hit those heights. Yeah, it's a shame because the number of just incredible songs that he's written that have lodged into so many people's brains and have influenced people, I'm sure he knows how much of an impact he's had on, on Western music. But yeah, it's just a shame that it all ended so so sourly. Yep. So, I mean, we, we always talk about with these bands, what what influence did they have on you in terms of music listening? But with the Beach Boys, like everything. Well, yeah. I mean, they, so everyone that's listening to this podcast, they will have been around since kind of day one of most people. And if we've got listeners in their 70s, that's part of their life. And so the impact's huge for me personally. We've gone through a couple of the songs and I think the the, the only real interest is the the separation between the real surf stuff and uh, and pet sounds, which I hadn't really understood until when mm-hmm. I got into my teens and I started and I listened to pet sounds and it's like wait a second these they aren't really a similar kind of sound and it needs that perspective of the sixties of the Beatles and, and 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 the Stones and the Kinks to try and show how that that change happened. What about you? Oh, same, yeah, same. Yeah. I mean, not not as big an influence as maybe the Beatles and a couple other bands, but they were one of those bands that it just played on the radio. You just hear things like Good Vibrations. Good Vibrations is just, it's just part of the musical fabric of my childhood because it was just on, like regularly on the radio. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, what a band. I'm, I'm, I'm super glad we've gone into them and you know, we've been waffling on for like a, <laughs> probably a, a solid hour, but in, in truth, we're scratching a surface. I mean, there's so yeah. much on on them. There's I, I started looking into their history and kind of flipped out a little bit just because there's so much <laughs> content. And so uh, we've probably missed stuff. We have missed stuff and we can't cover it all. But I hope that's given some people an, an idea of what they what they were. And what they achieved and how important they were. Have you ever seen them live? I know that they've played some stuff over the last couple of decades. Yeah, I haven't. Um, no, I've, I haven't. Have you? No, I remember watching the TV footage of Glastonbury when Brian Wilson played Smile there and feeling a little bit sad because they sort of wheeled him out and he had this kind of fixed smile on his face while he played all the songs and sang and then he went away again. And it, it almost felt like, while I've read in the research that he is much better and much more stable as a person now it does feel like he's maybe not the person he was in his 20s and it's funny the way that when you mentioned that because i've seen it as well your image of him was you just moved your hands and that was it and that's kind of what you saw you just he was just kind of mashing a keyboard and looking like he was totally spaced out and yeah uh, and i think that would be really difficult for someone who grew up with them i think for, for us it's like oh that's sad but i think for someone who really yeah, really got influenced by the Beach Boys. I think that must be really tough to watch. Yeah, it's incredible just in terms of <laughs> going through all that and still being able to be around and do that, though. Because, I mean, both his brothers passed away. I think his cousin is still around. 
I think so, yeah. There's a lot of bands and a lot of big figures from the 60s and 70s who haven't made it this far. So um, it's lovely that he's still around and at least feeling good in himself. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the Beach Boys, yeah. What more can we say? Probably a lot more, actually. But <laughs> yeah, but this, this <laughs> podcast can't be two or three hours long. Yeah, plus, yeah. we just don't have the time to do all of that research. Exactly. So, yeah, a, a good one. Cool. Uh, if you want to tell us which bits of the Beach Boys we've missed out that we should have really included or songs that we forgot to talk about, you can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. We are under the handle I Might Be Wrong UK come and have a chat we always like to hear from you we've had some good ones on some of the recent stuff that's gone up so that's been good we've appreciated that cheers for getting in touch henry we need to go away and think about what we're going to cover after this because you've you've set the bar very high yeah sorry it had to be done though but yes we might downsize a little bit after this one for the next album I'm not following this up with sergeant pepper we're gonna wait to <laughs> wait to do that I need to do the research for that one Thanks, mate. It's been fun. Cheers, buddy. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong. I'm sure he knows how much of an impact he's had on on Western music, but... Um, yeah, it's just a shame that it all ended so so sourly. Does he though? <laughs> well, well, Sorry, well. I'm going to take that out. But I have to do that. <laughs> Good. You can you can put that, in, put that in at the very end, or a- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just slice that out, put it right at the back, so I don't look like a dick to too many people because yeah. no one will listen past the uh, past the music. <laughs>